The birth of a baby is a defining moment in a woman's life. But what about the birth of a mother? That's right, when a baby is born, so too is a mother. This transition from woman to mother has a name. It's called matrescence. This developmental stage is as powerful and irreversible as adolescence, and yet few women have ever heard of it. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Each episode, we will bring you honest and thought-provoking conversations, evidence-based research and knowledgeable guests in order to help you emerge a more powerful and aligned version of yourself. So join us, your hosts, Kelly and Brie, as we attempt to make sense of our matrescence journey and to help you make sense of yours. Okay, so today we are talking about a topic that I am super passionate about, so I'm really excited to have this conversation, but I wanted to start by giving you a little bit of context in case you're not familiar with our situation. So I have been a nanny to Kel's boys for about five years now, since they were five and seven, and throughout those five years I have filled a role somewhere between mum, sister and friend. And over this time I have become the boys' go-to person to talk to about tricky things. And the nature of those conversations has changed over the years and continues to change. So we are constantly communicating, um, Kel and I, about how to best approach these conversations. So while I'm having them with my own three-year-old, I'm also dealing with them in the capacity of a 12 and 11-year-old as well. So as we try to gather the information for ourselves about how best to do this, we have brought in an expert (laughs) for you today, and that is Bridie. So thanks for joining us, Bridie. You're welcome. (laughs) And we are so excited to hear from you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what kind of work you're doing in this space at the moment? So I have been working with um, adults and children in a sexual health, sexual knowledge education space for quite a long time. Um, I spent a long time working in prisons with child sex offenders, um, victims, perpetrators, uh, youth offenders, women, um, and then moved into community psychiatric care. And that's something that also has is, is a lot of sexual issues that are very prevalent in the industry. Um, and now I work with children. Beautiful. So how did you get into that work? Into which work? Any of it. Where did you start? Did you go to university? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Should have thought of that one. <laughs> um, so I have a Bachelor of Psych, a Master's degree in Mental Health, and my current Master's degree is in Sexology. Beautiful. So you're working on that at the moment. I am. I'm almost finished. Wow. So you're the perfect person to answer our questions yeah, today. Just enough of a student that I'm still buried in a textbook. Yes. And interesting, well... Interestingly, I guess Bridie's not a parent, so she's coming in with a fresh set of eyes. She's engaging with these topics multiple times a day and with many different ages, and that's why we wanted to talk to you about it because we have our own experience talking to our boys, but we wanted to widen that perspective and get to know what you're hearing from kids and adults about their experiences with these topics. Yeah, and then the industry I work in at the moment, we do a lot of um, work with uh, trauma-informed um, frameworks. So that means that most of the kids we work with have some level of trauma. Um, that also means that they are not necessarily aware of sex, but they are aware that their consent at some point has been breached. Yeah. So it means that I've worked with kids from ages five to 25 and then adults beyond that in previous lines of work, um, where 
sexual health, um, autonomy, consent, uh, knowledge of your own body has not necessarily been featured very heavily in their education and is something that um, I now personally am very passionate about making happen. Absolutely. I mean, I guess you know better than anyone how important these conversations are. And we are going to absolutely dive into that. But I want to start at the very beginning and get to the bottom of where do we start? So if we have young children, I have a three-year-old boy myself, where do we start with these conversations? What are we talking to them about? What does that look like? It's a really great question. Um, And one that I was thinking about most of today. (laughs) (laughs) It's something I think starts from the beginning, exactly where you've you know, said, we look at from the beginning when they're born, as they're growing up, those conversations, like any type of role modeling and learning that happens around us should be happening gradually. Mm. You don't, uh, I guess the best way to put it is when you get to 15 at the moment, there's this expectation that now you're like, you're burgeoning into adulthood. You're going to be okay to talk about sex. This is the age where we can start having these conversations and it's not uncomfortable for adults. You're too late. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. You're too late already, but to- to turn on a 15-year-old and be like, great, so now I have this huge amount of information to give you. Yeah. And not all of it's going to be contextually correct mm. because it, you've already maybe experienced it or someone's already told you something completely different or you have um, now, I, I guess, a view of that act or behaviour that has been impacted by an experience that you maybe shouldn't have had or wouldn't have had if you'd known about it and what Mm. it was earlier. Yeah. So having those conversations from a really young age, like from the moment they start doing things. When you have a clean slate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that we are still learning with our little boy, but we are trying to have conversations with him about his body Mm. um, and using terms that are anatomically correct. And is that something that you think is important? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's been um, not to, I guess, in terms of stories and stuff like that, when you teach someone there's a body part that they have and you don't give it a name or you give it a name as something else, you're teaching them that that body part is something that they shouldn't talk about. Yeah. Creating that shame. Yeah. So even though you're not necessarily being like, you should be ashamed of this body part, you're being like, we don't call it a vulva. That's your private place. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, now I can't talk about it. You've yes. given it a name as a private place, so we can't discuss that and I can't bring it up. And you're intrinsically teaching that that's something that is going to be difficult to discuss now and later and is going to be difficult to show now and later. Absolutely. And that is something that I struggled with when I was younger. We, from memory, my parents called penises I'm thinking willies yeah, <laughs> and the vulvas, um, front bottoms, which I don't even know where that came from. I see the part. There's, there is <laughs> there is the crack. It's just a little smaller. <laughs> yes. And it was so bizarre because all of my friends used different terms for that. I was like, what do you call it? What do you call yeah. it? And no one called it a vulva. I think that is definitely a shift we've seen quite recently to using vulva as opposed to vagina. Mm as it should be. Um, But I remember as I was getting older and, you know, for example, going to the doctor and I was like, what do I call it? Like, I can't call it my front bottom because that's embarrassing. (laughs) But I felt like vagina, which was the word I would have used at the time, was such a dirty word. And I hadn't even come up with that belief myself. It had been handed down to me. And so that is something that we try to do with our little boy now is call our parts what they are. But I have still had to work through so much discomfort and it's interesting because it's not uncomfortable for him. He hasn't realised that 
some people feel shame over this. It's just what it is. Like a knee is a knee and a leg is a leg. So I guess that's what you mean in terms of starting at the very beginning. And the other place that I was interested to hear about is how do we start with consent at this age and when is it appropriate to start talking to kids about consent? Again, I think the beginning. (laughs) Um, And it is a really great question because I guess uh, sexual exploration for children starts from birth. Yes, and you have a really interesting statistic on this for us, don't you? Yeah, I do, which I think is great. So um, in my my researchy travels that I've taken very recently, um, most uh, there's been a lot of research into the age that someone might experience their first orgasm. And research has shown that it can actually happen from about the age of two. Too. So that's, that's probably really confronting for a lot of people to yeah, hear. Yeah, and it's and it is because like from the age of from the age of two is actually when most children will start um, self self stimulating. Yeah, um, and like which is a form of masturbation, as most of us know. Yeah, um, and for them, it's curiosity and play. This yeah. is a body part, um, the same way you might touch your toes, touch your knees. I've got this thing. It's between mm. my legs. What the hell does it do? Like we're on, and you know, we're on a journey here. We're thoroughly exploring this. Yeah. And so, for that reason, like a lot of, I think a lot of parents get really uncomfortable because they know that to be a sexual act, whereas children know it to be curiosity. Yeah, and I've heard um, just on Facebook forums and things like that, parents who are deeply uncomfortable Mm. with this it's not something I've really experienced my oh actually we have we've had this a little bit with my little boy recently where he's um getting an erection and he's so confused by it and he's like why won't it go down and he's like trying to poke (laughs) it down and then it's just coming up more (laughs) and as he said it's just it's curiosity he's like what is my body doing and how does it work but I know that this is super uncomfortable for a lot of parents and I'm curious, do you have any strategies or suggestions how to navigate that? Because I think a lot of us are mindful that we don't want to create shame for what is a normal behaviour. But some people struggle to identify whether it's a case of it's okay to do, but we do it in private or different things. How would you suggest people navigate that? Look, with two-year-olds, I'm not entirely sure. That's something that I think it comes down to uh, maybe context. If you're in Coles and they're doing that, maybe, you know. It's okay to say. It's okay to say, hey, this is something we do at home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a little bit older, that conversation might look like, how does that feel for you? Yeah. And they say, like, not okay to masturbate in <laughs> The yogurt aisle is not the place, son. Put it away. But, like, yeah, sorry. if you're having. <laughs> If you're having that conversation with someone a little older and you're like, well, how does that feel for you? Do you like the way that feels? Yeah. And then have them be like, oh, yeah, it actually feels really nice. You've normalized it. Mm. You've made it okay. This is a normal thing. And now we're going to be like, well, that's that's great. It's yeah. really good. It's very natural for you to do that. But it is a private thing. Yeah. So we might do that in our, in our bedrooms. Mm. And then you can move that conversation, if you wanted to, into the topic of like the consent where you'd be like, this is yours also. So no one is allowed to touch it but you. Yeah. And that's the end of it. So it's okay to create boundaries around it. Absolutely. But also, you know, we have certain boundaries around that to keep you safe. Yeah. Um, But it is a very, very normal part. Like erections um, start from around the age of two. mm -hmm. Um, Girls can self-lubricate from that age as well. It's really like we start forming sexuality and our biological, like, sexual nature 
from the moment we're born. Yeah. It's our own, I guess, shame and discomfort that acts as a barrier. <laughs> Absolutely. Properly educating around that and normalizing it, making it comfortable for kids. Absolutely. And I think that that is what is so challenging for us as parents is often the age that we think that these things are happening. It's often much sooner. Mm. And trying to wrap our head around that and get comfortable with that is really challenging. Um, so I think what I'm hearing you say is that we, we tend to build upon it. It's a building process. Yeah. So how do you judge what is age appropriate? And do you oh. follow their lead or do you lead the conversation? What should that look like? That one again, context dependent. I think <laughs> hitting you with the tough questions yeah, today. <laughs> well, I think remembering in this case um, that not every child is going to have the same experience mm. and be exposed to the same things. So I, I know someone who's a friend of mine who, from a very young age, her and her wife would walk around topless in front of their kids. That's Cal. Yeah. <laughs> make it natural, make it normal. And they're yeah. 18 now. And those kids, like, despite having a period of time where they felt slightly uncomfortable with their bodies mm. not anymore yeah. we've moved back into like feeling incredibly comfortable with themselves then going mm, is this what i'm supposed to be doing like because we're still teenager. getting these messages from society yeah so telling us that's a bit uncomfortable and then moving back into wow no i still really like the way i look because we're teaching that mm. so i guess it's context dependent in the sense that you don't know what a child has necessarily seen or been through mm. um You've got kids growing up in abusive situations, um, having witnessed pretty horrific things. And if you have a six-year-old that comes up to you and says, what's a blowjob? And you know that they've heard that word before mm. um, and then that's shut down, they're going to learn about it somewhere. Yeah, They're going to sure. learn about it from someone. And it may not be delivered in a way that teaches healthy like respect for self mm. and consent around that behavior at a later stage and there is a way to phrase it there's a healthy way to have those conversations i'm not suggesting you run out and grab a six-year-old and like start talking about blowjobs with them absolutely but it is i think just you've got discretion around what you know of that child and the experiences that they have and how you might phrase that for them and i guess that is the the importance of parents being the ones to have these conversations yeah. is that we know our kids better than anyone else. And we may know that, you know, maybe our first child was ready for these topics at at 10 mm. and our second child is a little bit more shy and introverted and um, not that interested and he might not be ready till he's 12. So we are able to gauge this. Um, but it was something that I actually learnt from working with Kel was that when I came into their family, they were very open about the way they talked about things. The boys understood the basics of how a baby was made. And that was so different to my upbringing growing up that I was kind of like, whoa, like, should you know that? Yeah. <laughs> I was caught off guard by at seven years how much they knew. And I thought it was fantastic. But it triggered so much shame within me to start to have these conversations because I had never had to have them before. And I'm curious to hear what your experience was like growing up because you've ended up studying sexology, which is incredible. Is that a natural choice for you? Like, did was that representative of your childhood that you talked about these things quite openly or was that a, something that came later? Um, it was a bit of both. My mum was always very much like, uh, this is the words we use, these are how babies are made, she's a nurse, so it wasn't 
something that she ever tried to hide. Um, if you came home and you had like a bit of an itchy vulva, she'd be like, right, oh, pants off, let me have a look. Gloves <laughs> gloved up and then she'd be like yep. in there and you're like, this is, mum, stop it, it's not cool. <laughs> um, my dad was um, aware of these things and would have the really biological conversations but kind of steered clear of uh, too much crossover between masculine and feminine. Is that something Didn't you see sense. a lot? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of men who are quite uncomfortable having those conversations with daughters mm. because from a young age they're kind of taught that, you know, women are sexual creatures. So to have a conversation like that with a female child that is yours biologically is inherently uncomfortable. Is it important or it's, is it okay for one parent to do it, do you think? Um, look, I wouldn't – I'm not going to comment on that so much, I don't think, because I don't know and mm. I don't want to say one or the other because – I mean, there's families where dad is the one that has those conversations and he's probably amazing at it. Totally. Or if we've got two dads, they're having a great time with that conversation as well. So it's not it's, it's not, not right necessarily important. Yeah. yeah. Um, as long as someone is, I suppose. Yes. But even with those conversations, I know um, sex in my – when I was growing up was always treated with a sense of humour, mm. which I always found like now – I. I find it very important. It's how I used to describe most things when I'm having conversations yeah. about it. Um, in terms of deciding to pursue this line of like work, I think um, it occurred to me when I was about 14 um, that I wanted to, I wanted to understand sex. Didn't quite flesh it out enough to really know what it was about. Mm -hmm. But I remember having a conversation with my grandmother and being like, I'd like to be a sex therapist, thinking that it would freak her out. And she was like, you're going to be the best damn one. My nana would have one. dropped dead. <laughs> My nana, I remember having, I had a, like a 365-day calendar Kama Sutra thing on the wall. I would have been 15. And, um, Amazing. She, like, it wasn't, I thought it was a joke. Like, it was like, lol, this is funny. I'm a teenager. These are all sex positions. Haven't really learned about them. And my grandmother came over and, like, sat next to me and she was like, oh, this one you mean your pa do. And I was like, oh, <laughs> damn. But it was very much, like, um, treated with humour. It was yeah. always treated with humour. And everyone was always using the, the correct biological terms. And we, if you asked a question, um, I think – Socially, the social constructs around behaviors like blowjobs and stuff, my dad would have left the room. Yeah. Um, but in terms of like learning about your body, learning about consent, learning about, you know, people can't touch you and all that sort of stuff that was happening right throughout. That is so different to my own experience. It could not be more different because growing up, it was not something we talked about at all. I do not remember mm. my mum ever talking to me about correct or my dad, um, especially not my dad, ever talking to me about correct um, anatomical names, about sex. I received no education around periods. It was kind of like figure it out as you go. Um, we just did not talk about these things. And I've gone back and asked my mum in, in later years because we do have really good relationship, um, you know, why, why not? And she said, I was just so uncomfortable. Like, I just hoped that someone else would have the conversation like school. Um, and to me, being mindful that all parents do the best that they can, um, 
it seems almost negligent because for me it meant that as a as a child and as a teenager I was trying to figure these things out on my own and so I was trying to gather my own information and as you said it's not always from the best sources sometimes it's from the internet I think even more these days it's from the internet and we can't control or censor that Um, we can't control what perspectives are being represented and who's generally men's. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Also, you know, trial and error and um, experiencing, and I just didn't go into any of those situations feeling confident or prepared. Um, Do you think we're changing this at all? Do you think we're still relying on schools to educate our children about these topics or do you think we're seeing more parents talk about them? Oh, again, context dependent. (laughs) I think it really depends where you go. Um, and which areas you go to. Um, in terms of schools, there is a push for a change in sex education. Thankfully, Australia as a whole doesn't have any like abstinence only programs. There are countries in the world that do. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have uh, biologically and medically based sex education. So, what does that mean? That what means does it look like? that we're more likely to just be like, this is a vulva. Uh, this is a condom. If you don't use it, you're going to get an STI, get pregnant. You will die. Yeah. Um, you won't. Just just a joke <laughs> for anyone who couldn't see my face. Um, <laughs> but that, that idea that we, when we focus purely on the biological and the medical in sex education, we completely disregard the sociocultural and psychological impact of what sex is to a person and their identity. Mm. Um, the, the larger part of it, really. Yeah. And for that reason, when we do that, we we leave a lot of kids without any real knowledge. Yeah. And, um, I, mean, and I guess ability to have a conversation about it the same way we've left parents with that same problem. Yeah, for sure. And this is something that you touched on before that is very similar to my experience is that for me, with with Cal's boys, when these conversations started to change tone from sex for reproduction to pleasure, you know, curiosity about, um, you know, where does this fit in? This isn't part of making babies, so why do people do that? Mm. That is when I started to find the conversations more uncomfortable and I had to work through my own shame. And do you think that that's a barrier for a lot of parents in terms of talking to their kids is our own shame we carry about these things or just a lack of information or the perception that someone else will talk to our kids? What do you think the barriers are? I think you've named pretty much all of them. (laughs) Um, There's a lot more, obviously, but those are your big ones. I think there's been – when we look back at what sex education has been previously, you're looking at abstinence only Mm. and then you're looking at medical and like biological sex education. Those so have been we've your kind of shifted. Front. We've shifted now, but you're dealing with parents who have come from that era and their parents have come from the era before. Yes. So it's intergenerational um, ignorance. Yeah. It's not the best word, but that's what I'm going to use. Yep. Um, and it's that concept that they're learning from someone that didn't learn mm. and they've learned from someone that didn't learn. So a barrier there is them going, I, I don't know what to say. And I turned I out okay. Yeah, I, I turned out. Yeah, I turned out okay. I have a <laughs> little bit of trauma, but you know, for the most part, <laughs> it's all like the more mistakes you make, the more you learn, yes. all that sort of stuff. And then assuming that the schools are going to do it, but at the same time, parents have such an, a say in the education system. I know that's not necessarily true, but there are like people who do. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, 
have issues when we start to move away and increase absolutely like the amount of sex education and what the focus is. Yeah. So they keep it conservative and parents have a say in that that conservative nature. If you look at our government currently, you're seeing what a conservative like approach would look like. For sure. And so they're expecting the schools to educate, but then at the same time, those schools don't have permission to educate well. Effectively, for yeah. sure. So you're getting kids who are, for parents, being, I guess, um, they're not getting the education that they need from their parents because the parents are too concerned, uncomfortable. They're not getting it from the schools because the schools are worried about what the parents are doing and the nature of the culture around them. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, it's just that sense that um, at some point they'll just learn. Yeah. So no one is having these conversations effectively. But we also don't, like, if I can just really quickly, no one teaches us to sit in discomfort. And it is uncomfortable. Yeah. As a parent, (laughs) I feel like, and this is just completely off topic, but as a parent, I feel like there should be courses or some sort of um, teaching available to let parents learn how to have uncomfortable and difficult conversations in a healthy way. For sure. And I think there is a few out there. I'll do a little bit of research and if I come across anything, I'll chuck it in the episode notes. Um, but you're right. No one's telling us how to have these conversations. We're kind of fending for ourselves. But as you said, we're receiving one, one small part of sex education, but it's not comprehensive at all. And in my experience where that became problematic for me was that, and I'm not going to explain this eloquently, but I'm going to go with it, (laughs) because I didn't have this foundation with my parents. So, for example, they knew that I was sexually active um, or they knew that I was drinking alcohol. When I then inevitably found myself in a situation that was either uncomfortable or dangerous or where I needed their support, I didn't feel that I could come to them because it was such a chasm to cross from I have a daughter who's not sexually active to, hey, actually I am sexually active and I found myself in this bad position and I need your help. Yeah. So I think that that is the importance of, as you said, building on it because otherwise, you know, where are kids going when they end up in these situations? I guess probably they're calling you. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes. (laughs) At work? Yeah. (laughs) Not you personally. My Um, home phone. Um but actually the way you even phrase that, you've gone from having a kid who's sexually uh, not sexually active to sexually active. You've been activated. Congratulations. Yeah. We've gone from this really black and white binary perspective of how sex works, and that's not the case. Yeah. As you probably well know, and I think most people do, you don't just, like, trip and fall on a dick in a heterosexual relationship or even in any sort of LGBT relationship, you don't just suddenly like go to sex. Zero to you 100. start with like all of the foreplay that goes before it and the, the non-penetrative sexual acts that come before it. Things that we're not, we're, we're choosing to ignore again because we're so focused on that binary perspective of penetrative sex. Yeah. Like, now you're sexually active. You weren't before. You might have had, you might have been fingered. You might have done like oral. You might have done all of these things, but you're now sexually active when you've hit that point. Yeah. So you think as parents, we need to be mindful that that is not the beginning, that sex is not the beginning. Usually there's things before that. Yeah. And so we need to be having these ongoing conversations. Because, I mean, if you're not talking about sex, you're not talking about safe sex, are you? Exactly. Beautifully phrased. (laughs) But even, like, when you were saying before, going back to the beginning and having those conversations as they pop up, they're going to pop up, and they're going to pop up far before anyone actually starts having sex. Yeah. At some point, someone's going to be like, well, like, what does this do? What do 
like what is sex? What is um, a blowjob? What is a anal? Like these yeah. questions will come up at ages before they will even think about doing it. And rightly or wrongly, these questions have very much come up with Kel's boys and at times there'll be there'll be moments when I tell them and there'll be other ones where I say, hey, I don't think this is a conversation for me. I think this is one for mum and dad. Or I'll just say, I don't think we're at the point of talking about that. Like let's come circle back to it and we'll get to that later. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if that is right or wrong, but you know, as parents, we're human too, and we're doing our best to to be honest and give information and still gauging what is appropriate and inappropriate because what I'm finding is that the kids are hearing this. I'm not sure if it's online or at school, people with older brothers, and so they don't actually have any concept of what it is. They're just asking about a term. And in those moments, it sometimes feels okay to me to be like, hey, we'll get to that. You know, yeah. we're, not, we're not at that point yet. Um, but the cool thing about the way that we've engaged with these topics is that for me at least there's no huge moment of discomfort I've always thought of the sex talk as being a like sit down with your parents and Mm. you know we're going to tell you how it really works but there's lots of little moments of discomfort but because they're getting an understanding that we're building on we just work through one and then we take a step and then we take a step and it's just building um instead of just having a massive talk where we like crush all their dreams and you know (laughs) even that talk when you talk about the sex talk traditionally that has been um you will have sex you will use a condom heterosexual hetero sorry heterosexual normativity yes and this is a period Mm. congratulations ready to bleed yeah you know um, we're not talking about all of the other things, the things yeah, that you're talking about. I don't remember it even being mentioned at school that there was anything other than sex. Mm. No, and it's they don't. It's important to mention. <laughs> it's Well, I mean, considering the, the huge breadth of activity that happens For sure. and that is considered sexual activity, we're missing out on a lot. Yeah, and I think also in terms of we were saying before, if you're not talking about sex, we're not talking about safe sex. But that's the other thing is that we do not know the sexuality of our children mm. when we're having these conversations. So talking about sex in general, we can approach it from a position of heteronormativity. Am I getting the word right? Yeah, <laughs> sounds great to me. I'm just making it up. <laughs> so we're, we're often approaching that the conversation from that perspective if we are in a heterosexual relationship ourselves. But then it gives the opportunity to expand it and say, um, and this is something I've said with Kel's boys before, is that, you know, this is what we commonly refer to as sex. It's penis in vagina, penetration penetrative sex but that's not the only thing sex is and it can also look different for different people so it provides the opportunity to broaden that conversation and that's something that definitely doesn't happen in schools is considering the different perspectives that sex comes from yeah it absolutely doesn't i think there is a push nowadays to have that happen um because we're learning more and more that there's such a significant number of the population that identify as LGBTIQA+. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. Um, more than was previously thought. And it's not something we can just tack on to the end of conversations. It no. needs to be integrated. It's, I mean, like it's a huge part of the population and it should have always been, but, you know, we can only change what we now can change. Absolutely. So having that as part of the conversation is really, really important. And we, like you said, we don't, Yeah, we just don't do it enough. And we also, when we approach sex again, it's usually from a penetrative standpoint because we're mostly focused on fear-based biological and medical education around, if you do this, you will get pregnant, you will get an STI. Yeah. But I mean, if we were to talk about that, how do lesbians get STIs? 
you're not teaching that to the kids in your schools that will do identify as that. Absolutely. So when we're sharing this information with kids, and this is something that I've struggled with personally, is how important is it for you to share your own experiences as an adult? Is that appropriate? Is it important? Is it beneficial? Mm. How do we how do we approach that? Because this is a great question, um, and I say this because I work with I work with families um, in a trauma informed space. So when you have children who have trauma, you have adults who have trauma Mm. and you have grandparents who have trauma. Um, And I know most of the kids I work with are under 10. Um, So we have kids that I work with who already have an innate fear of sex, have an innate fear of intimacy, have an innate fear of relationships because mum will talk about the time they might have been raped. Mm. as a as a precursory warning, you know, this is what can happen to you if. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a bad thing um, if you're sitting there going, you know, I know that this is there's a potential danger there, but you're projecting that fear onto a child that doesn't understand this yet. Potentially without the context of this is normal and this is not normal. Yeah. Maybe just giving them that not normal. Exactly. So you're giving them you're giving them sex and their normal perspective of sex comes from fear. Yeah. And for that reason, I think there's – it's context-dependent again. We need to have if boundaries around it. Yeah. If you're a dad, you're sitting on the couch and your son's like, oh, dad, I play with my penis today. And you're like, good on you, buddy. Me and too. then he's like, did you? And you're like, yeah, I did. Yeah. Do you like it, dad? Yeah, I do. You'd be like, oh, okay, cool. Like those conversations around normalcy of masturbation and all that sort of stuff, if they're coming from a more positive place, Mm -hmm. something that teaches bodily consent, autonomy, um, and all that sort of stuff, great. But if you're sitting there being like, I had this really awful experience and now I'm telling you about it and this is the only thing that I will tell you about this activity that you will inevitably engage in, Mm. You're just sharing intergenerational trauma. So being really mindful of when it's helpful and when it's going to be Yeah, harmful. and understanding what age might work with that. So, like, t- talking to a seven, eight-year-old about your rape experience is going to have a different impact with sharing that with your 19-year-old daughter. Yeah, Someone sure. who has an understanding of the wider sociocultural society that we live in and the behaviours that people, like, exhibit and the relationships that you can have yeah when an eight-year-old might only know you as a parent and really that's their social circle is very very small so ideally we're trying to give them the education to prevent themselves them finding themselves in these situations instead of sharing them and scaring them yeah um yeah absolutely and this with the boys the way that i've tried to approach this is to show them that it's okay for me to have boundaries and model that to them so that they can have their own and when i when i think it will be helpful i'll share the information but sometimes they'll ask me questions um such as how old i was when i started having sex and I can't see the benefit in sharing that information with them and it feels private to me. So I'll just tell them, I'll say, you know, I don't think that's actually, that doesn't feel appropriate for me to share with you. So I'm going to keep that to myself. Whereas there's other times where I can talk about my experience in a way that I think humanizes me and closes that bridge. Because I remember as a, 
as a child and as a teenager thinking that my parents never did anything that was kinky or sexual or like <laughs> definitely not them. Like they've got four children, but I'm like, I don't know how that happened, but it was not through this means. <laughs> and so I think that there's incredible value in just like humanizing yourself to your kids and reminding them that we've all pretty much been through the same experience of, you know, exploration and things like that. Um, and that in a way, I think, I, I mean, I hope gives them permission to as well, you know, to be clumsy and um, figure it out themselves. And and when they find themselves in these situations, feel comfortable then coming back to you as a parent or, in my case, um, just as an adult in their life that they feel comfortable sharing with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right to do that. Boundaries are very important. When you role model them, you're also teaching them how to politely, like, say no to a conversation yeah. that they don't want to have, that they're not ready to have for themselves which is really, really important. Absolutely. Now, I think that I was trying to think about some of the, um, the the misconceptions around sex education and talking to our kids about these topics. And one that I think comes up quite frequently is this belief that if we talk to kids about these topics, it will encourage them to engage in them. So if we're talking to kids about porn and masturbation and sex, well, then they'll know and they'll go do it. And mm. so we withhold this information in hopes that they maybe just won't find it out and then won't do it. Do you think that's true? No. <laughs> Straight up no. I just, I don't. <laughs> it's like, it, it's like sitting there being like, um, you see the cars, you know, that they're driving past. We're not going to tell you anything about them. Hmm. One day you'll drive it. But we're very, very afraid of what's going to happen when you do because there's lots of stuff that can go wrong in a car. So we're just not going to tell you about it. Yeah. Whereas you have this opportunity to spend a very long time gradually teaching something that will make when they finally drive the car very safe. Yeah. And it's it's really disappointing, I think, to to have that sense of I'm so afraid of this conversation and I'm so uncomfortable with this conversation that I'm not going to share it with my child. I shouldn't say disappointing because that's not the right word. But it's a loaded one, isn't it? It is a very, very loaded <laughs> term. Um, but that sense of I'm so uncomfortable with this that I, I can't I can't do this. I can't have this conversation. And I feel alone in this conversation and unsure. And there's such um, a gravity in having that conversation when you are yourself um, unsure of how to have it because – you're looking at your child being like, I don't want to screw you up. Yeah, it's coming from a good place and yeah. good intention. And so much of that is I don't want this to be something that makes you drive, like run towards it or anything like that. But studies have actually shown that kids who have good sex education um, and understanding of their own like body, understanding of terms, understanding of the way that they can say no, build boundaries, and all of those things are more likely to have healthier sexual relationships as adults they're like less likely to engage in risky sexual behaviors they're more likely to experience their first orgasm at their own hands mm. than a stranger's or someone else's which yes. is a big thing for women yes. um they're more likely to be able to go and get sexual health checks without freaking out mm. and they can label the part of the body when they go because they know what it's called yeah so there's so much that the education around that make safer for adulthood because sexuality is so huge as a part of growing up. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, you're basically like by not 
normalizing that body part, you're getting a child to ignore a whole part of themselves, not for the purpose of sexuality, but for sexual health. Yeah. You, you should be able to go to the doctor and go, this hurts. What do I do? And I feel comfortable showing it to you. I feel, I feel safe showing it to you. I feel like if you do anything I don't like, I can say no. Yeah. Whereas if you're sending someone in there who doesn't, who doesn't know what to call it or um, has never been able to have those conversations before or can't reach out to someone they or know. Or like me, I'd just ignore it until it became unbearable. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, be like, like, I can't Fuck, walk. I've got to go. <laughs> <laughs> but people who have those conversations with their kids, their kids yeah. are going to go, Mum, I can't. I don't know what this is. I'm really scared. I've got to go to the doctor. Even as an adult, I've taken my mum to the doctor as an adult and been like, this freaks me out. Yeah. I don't want to be by myself while I go and do this. I Which is, to- you're right. If you yeah. want to do that, that's Absolutely. totally fine. Yeah. Um, but knowing that I can ask those questions and having someone come with you and just be like, right, you know, we're cool with using proper terms um, and you're you're safe and comfortable and confident. All of those things are happening for you now. Yeah. It's It's better for mental health to have sex ed. Absolutely. And again, I'm just speaking to my own experience, but when I think about how I navigated this and where I learned from, it certainly wasn't my parents. It wasn't adults giving me information. And that doesn't change the fact that you have these biological urges and instincts. You hit puberty and these are things that you're, you know, you're actively seeking out and you're wanting to engage in. And that's perfectly normal. So withholding information does not block that. It doesn't change the fact that teenagers and are starting to develop these feelings. But without an adult to share this information from me, you know, I was getting it probably most commonly from my boyfriend who was trying to figure it out for himself. And probably got a lot of it from porn. Yes. (laughs) And also was, you know, it's another party that doesn't necessarily have my emotional and sexual safety Mm. as their priority. Yeah. And they also can't speak to a gendered experience. Yeah. And that leads perfectly into my, into probably my last question, um, but a big one and one that I did prepare you uh, for. So recently on Instagram, I am following a, I guess, an, an influencer, a content creator who works in the, in the sex space. Um, I'm not sure exactly what capacity in, but she was talking about her belief that all parents, when their child, when their daughter hits puberty, should provide their kids with an age appropriate dildo. And I remember hearing this and having such a visceral reaction, like, oh my God, that is completely inappropriate. I would be mortified if my parents did that to me. But then she went on to explain that, you know, hey, isn't it better that our our girls, our women are learning about their own bodies and exploring them on their own terms at their own pace before we are trusting, you know, uh, engaging in that act- those activities with men. And I was kind of like, oh, um, okay, like she raises some good points. So I wouldn't say I'm totally there yet, but I'm interested to hear your perspective. And we're not we're not advocating that everyone goes out and buys uh, crystal dildos for their teens, but I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm interested to hear your perspective on that. Oh, I'm on the fence. Yeah. I would say I'm on the fence, and for a couple of reasons. And it's not not because I don't necessarily agree with the idea of masturbation. I think that we should absolutely be advocating for female masturbation um, in early teens. And adulthood. And adulthood. Go team. (laughs) Because boys start masturbating 11, pre-11. Like that's that's the average age. It's getting younger and younger, Mm. particularly because we're being exposed to so much sexual content everywhere. Whereas for girls, it's very, very different. 
Mm. Um, and that sense of internalized shame around masturbation is still occurring. Um, so the idea of normalizing that and being like, you, you're 13, you know, do, would you, would you like to masturbate? Would you like to have a toy that will make it easier for you instead of being like, I'm about to break a wrist or a toothbrush? Um, <laughs> uh, and all that sort of stuff, pillow humping, whatever else goes on normalizing that making it safe and then giving them the power to choose that toy might be the better way to go Mm -hmm. having that conversation around would you like a toy because i think the dildo lovely also implies heteronormative Mm, um, ideals and it's not to say that you know we just because you're gay you wouldn't be interested in it but you might that that might not be what you like so just putting the conversation back to them and saying you know this is something that some people use is it something that you'd like yeah um we have clit stimulators you've got like so many different types of toys that exist and beyond that there's websites like oh my god yes okay um actually sorry not oh my god yes that's a website about articles there's something else (laughs) oh i'll have to forward it to you (laughs) i will find it and i'll send it to you but there's a website that you sign up to and it's free and it is just videos of women masturbating but it's uh, educational okay. so they'll do they'll have an interview with someone and they'll be like um this is sarah um what what is it that you think about sexuality sarah how do you like to do it and then sarah will get back and be like so this is the way i would typically do this not to um they don't masturbate to completion. They masturbate for the purpose of showing you different techniques. Mm, that's so interesting. And normalizing how it goes. And I think that, you know, as a parent, I still find that so uncomfortable to think about. But again, you know, in this day and age, we have to assume that our kids, many of them, are seeking out porn. So they're seeing this kind of explicit content. And so I guess encouraging them to consume more appropriate, more healthy and more educational content is a very valuable thing to do. Yeah. And having someone, like when you look at porn as a general concept, like a very brief. Oh, this is a whole topic in it, itself. Yeah, as a, like to, I'll lead it straight back, I promise. But yeah. if you look at porn as a general topic, um, even with gay sex, it is a phallic-centric experience. Yes, which is um, penis for everyone that yeah, doesn't know. <laughs> penis. It's a penis-centric experience. If you watch it for lesbian porn, it's performative and yes. phallic-centric again. Yeah. Websites like this one that I'm going to find the name of um, – <laughs> show it from an educational perspective for women. Yeah. Um cisgendered or otherwise, but it is very much about teaching someone to go this is your body. How would you like to pay attention to it? Yeah, and obviously this is not what the what the conversation is about, but these are conversations I remember having with my friends as we kind of entered into adulthood where they were talking about the fact that they were having sex and not orgasming, but they were also talking about the fact that they'd never masturbated. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. If you don't know what you like, how are you meant to tell someone else what you like yeah. kind of thing? So it, it sets us up for a really healthy adulthood as well. And then hopefully we're kind of breaking this cycle Absolutely. and can then approach these topics with our kids a little bit easier. Yeah. And I mean, exactly what you're saying right now, when you talk about that, that age group from like 13 to 17, particularly with women and they haven't masturbated, their first sexual experience is going to be at the hands of usually a male partner. Yeah. Which is slightly terrifying to think about. And those male partners, like you've pointed out earlier on, don't have their emotional, psychological well-being necessarily. Yeah. And that doesn't mean they're trying to harm us, but you know, we're often- But they don't know. Yeah. 
And we're so, often two teenagers trying to figure it out. Yeah, and you just fumble around in the dark messy. hoping for the best. <laughs> but it's it's very much about, yeah, that education, I think, from a really young age, from the beginning. Beautiful. Well, I think we can wrap up there. We've we've covered a breadth on this topic <laughs> and it's been super fun. So thank you so much. And we will definitely include that link in the episode notes when you figure it out. Um, so thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for today's conversation. If you want to hear more like this, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to know more about anything we talked about or you heard on the podcast today, check out our website, www.birthofamother.com.au. You can find us on Instagram at matrescence.podcast or send us an email to info at birthofamother.com.au. If you think others could benefit from this podcast, take a screenshot of you listening to this episode to post on your social media and tag us. Alternatively, consider leaving a review with your favourite things about the Matrescence podcast. This really helps us to increase our visibility and ensure we are reaching as many women as possible. As always, thank you for spending your time with us. We hope you will tune in next time.